He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not, where, we do not know where he has come from. The man answered, Here is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do this. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord. given this passage, I was pretty nervous, because um, of course I got a passage about miracles, um, and I'm not sure about anyone else in the conversations that you had, but talking about miracles makes me feel a little uncomfortable and a little anxious, and as I began to open up commentaries, many of them talked about how important it was for whoever who was preaching this text to have like, incredible discernment, lots of experience with pain that the theme should be um, treaded lightly, and that this text was just as much for the pulpit as it was the pew. Um, and as I continued to dig into this narrative, I began to understand the care and diligence that they were talking about. So this passage is full of questions and full of characters that we may resonate with. The passage begins with a question, right there in verse 2. As the disciples approached the blind man, they asked, Whose fault is this? Is it the man? Was it his parents? And this is a common belief, this generational passing of sin. And even though we don't typically blame illnesses on the sin of someone's parents now, it's not abnormal for people to still associate any form of suffering as a direct effect of sin or lack of faith. Um... A tweet actually went out this week from a very prominent evangelical leader saying, We will find mental health when we stop staring in the mirror and fix our eyes on the strength and beauty of God. And I'm confident that many of us, in the face of illness and struggle, have been told that we must pray more, that we have lacked in our faith somehow, that we have strayed away. 
And what's more interesting is that the disciples are not concerned with healing or helping the man. They just want to know why he's blind. Whose fault is this? Why? This is a question about suffering. I think we often find ourselves looking upon human misery, affliction, and unjust suffering and asking the same question, why? Jesus, however, instead of digging into this question, refuses to look for a culprit. He confirms that this suffering is not from anyone's sin. And if taken too quickly, Jesus' next answer does not sit well. This man was born so that God's works might be revealed in him. Like, this man was born blind and suffered so that God could do something good later. And I don't think that Jesus was saying that this specific man being made blind was that Jesus could come along later and, and do a miracle because this narrative is bigger than this one man. You have to keep reading to understand. Jesus explains that he must do the work of God and proclaims that he is the light of the world. Jesus isn't brushing off the question of why. And he also isn't implying that miracles will come for everything. He's making a deeper statement about the God who sent him. And that statement is that God overcomes our finitude. He overcomes all of those secondary causes by nature, accident, misfortune, because God is greater than all of that suffering. He overcomes through solidarity found in our salvation. He means that God will overcome this man's impairment in a way in time known to God. The suffering of this man is dealt with as a mystery, not a problem. John isn't writing about a flawless universe or one shot through with miracles, but he is writing about being open to God's initiative to how God will work. What's funny is that no one ever asks for healing or mercy for this man, not even the man himself. Um, we don't even hear anything from the man for a little while. But Jesus takes initiative. He finds the man in his darkness. And he heals merely in response to a theological question. Jesus' answer in the beginning indicates that God's work is not to condemn people to darkness. It is to bring light to them. Because again, he is the light of the world. And as we continue into this narrative, we see more and more that Jesus gives sight and light and life, both physically and figuratively. So Jesus spits in the dirt, makes mud, puts it on the man's eyes. And surprisingly, to my disappointment, this was probably the least odd thing in the passage in its historical context. Saliva was thought of as a potential healing agent for the eye. Um, however, the problem is that making mud was a violation of the Sabbath. Not just the healing, but the literal making of mud was the violation. And this isn't the first time in John, in John that Jesus has uh, been caught healing on the Sabbath. And this will come back uh, to hunt the man more, more than Jesus pretty soon. So the blind man goes to the pool and he washes the mud away as Jesus has instructed and then he returns to his neighbors, and the arguments and the questions begin. It's interesting that the majority of this passage is not focused on celebrating the miracle that this man can see now. Rather, it's spent arguing about who performed the miracle, how was it done, 
what's the nature of the person who who did this miracle, and then what does this man think about the man who healed him? Um, miracles don't come up a lot in my everyday conversations, but these conversations started to feel a little familiar. So it starts with his neighbors. The neighbors begin to argue if this is the same blind beggar that they had always seen before. Is this him? No, it's just someone who looks like him. How would he see? The neighbors are divided on the identity of this man. And this is finally when we hear the man speak for the first time, I am the man. <laughs> they ask about how he now sees, and he responds only what he knows. A man named Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me to go wash, and now I see. And they ask where Jesus has gone, and the man says, I don't know. So then they bring the man before the Pharisees, so we enter into our second audience. And this isn't thought to be out of hostility, but more out of curiosity, and this is a religious situation. So the man tells the story again, Jesus put him out of my eyes, washed, now I see. And the Pharisees' first objection is that Jesus could not be for him God because he didn't observe the Sabbath. But then, just like the neighbors, the Pharisees become divided on this question because others are like, well, how could this man heal if he's not from God? So they question the man further. What do you say about this man? And this is where the story starts to shift for the man. Because Jesus is no longer just the man who puts mud on his eyes. Jesus is now a prophet. At this point, somehow the Jews have come into the narrative. So now we've got the neighbors, the Pharisees, and the Jews. And guess what? They are divided. They are not convinced that this man was formerly blind. So, so far he's had his identity questioned. Um, the, Jesus's identity has been questioned, and now they're questioning whether he was even blind in the first place. So they call on his parents to come forward and confirm that he was blind. And they do confirm his blindness, but they don't answer how he receives sight. Because he's of age and he can speak from, for himself. And like the passage talked about, um, confirming faith in Jesus at this point was a huge risk of being picked out of the synagogue. So the parents are kind of divided too. They don't want, quite want to get on board with this either. So the man is questioned again. Um, well, he's more like threatened. They tell him, give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And the man responds, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. <laughs> Just like the fourth time that he's had to explain this. And I just want to pause for a second because, oh, okay, this is the third time in the passage that this man has explained, I see now. And I just wonder how annoying this had to be for the man who, like, born blind, has lived blindness, now having sight, experiencing who knows what. And no one, not even his own parents, are in awe of this or celebrating with him or stopping going, like, oh, wow, like, you see now. That's, like, pretty amazing. Um, nope, but we return to more questions. So the Jews ask again, how did this happen? And he says, I have already told you. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And again, the man's story is shifting as he is claiming himself to become a disciple. 
but the Pharisees do not like this question. Um, and it is thought that maybe the man asked it with a little bit of sarcasm, because he knows what's going on at this point. But the Pharisees ridiculed him and say, we are Moses' disciples, but you are a disciple of Jesus. <laughs> and the man responds, this is an amazing thing. If this man is not from God, he would not be able to do this. And the final division sets in as they say, you were born entirely in sin. You are trying to teach us. And they throw the man out. When Jesus finds out that the man is thrown out, he goes and finds him again. And he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the formerly blind man continues to be open and receptive and says, Who is he that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, It is me who is speaking to you. And the man says, I believe. And he worships him. And Jesus then brings the story full circle saying, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees show back up and ask, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Jesus confirms their blindness. And by the end of this narrative, those who are blind and those with who have sight have switched. Light comes to those who acknowledge that life is darkness without Jesus. Darkness comes to those who, without him, claim that they can see. The connection between sin and sight shows that those who are guilty are those who fail to perceive and receive God's work of giving light and darkness through the work of Jesus. Those that are blind to the work of God because they believe the man is a sinner already condemned. They doubt the healing ever took place. They question the means by which it is done. They discount the significance for whom Jesus might be. They brush off the man's confession and send him out of their presence. They might have physical sight, but they are still blind. And again, I get uncomfortable sometimes with these like judgment passages, but Jesus doesn't take initiative in judgment. He lets people pass judgment on him and thus themselves. Because the light is shining, it creates judgment in the very act of bringing salvation into the world. And Jesus is bringing that light to anyone who's responsive to him. So where do you find yourself in this narrative? Are you the undecided neighbors? the frightened and uninvolved parents, the Bible-quoting critics of Jesus, the disciples who wish to discuss human suffering but aren't really interested in healing, or the healed man who pays dearly for Jesus' blessing. And I wonder if these rounds of questioning feel familiar to anyone else. At what point do we start drawing too many lines around how God can work and surely how God could not work. At what point do I start drawing too many lines? Like I said, miracles make me pretty nervous. Partly because I'm a skeptic, and partly because I'm just weary. 
is it possible that God's doing works in the ways that we wouldn't have done it? Could God do works in ways that don't match our theology? Would we be open? Will we see it? The problem from Jesus' ending remarks is that if we say we see, but we don't, that is where the guilt comes in. And this warning comes to be cautious of becoming self-assured, to closing the mind to any further word from God, to become the possessors of the final truth with no need to listen to prophets. The blindness Jesus is calling out is not necessarily a giant blindness, but the little blindnesses that cry out for examination, the ones that demand explanation. The true believers in God are not the angry, the arrogant, or the smugly, isolated, who have all the right answers. And despite the division and conflict for everyone else, this courageous Jew keeps telling the truth. Audience after audience, question after questioning, I am blind, and now I see, and this is an amazing thing. And it leads him to truly see the light of the world. He moves through the narrative from knowing Jesus as a healer to a prophet to the Son of Man. And this story tells the coming story of the church. Sometimes, for those of us now able to see grace and truth in God, we deal with explaining and arguing with old neighbors. Maybe alienation from family, being ridiculed and questioned. Jesus does not deny that seeing the light of the world may bring division and rejection. However, Jesus' goal is also not to go about creating division and separation. This narrative attempts to build a bridge between Jews and believers in Jesus, the protagonists of Moses and the followers of Jesus. It's not denouncing any tradition that is truly concerned with knowing the divine, with seeking the light. And it reminds me of how we gather here each Sunday and we take up, where is it at? <laughs> this bread, <laughs> right there. And we talk about, in part, how it symbolizes the body of Christ and how we couldn't say to another part, no matter how different that part is, I don't need you. Do we find ourselves so wrapped up in how God would or wouldn't work that we can just stop and say, wow? And even the little everyday miracles and the ways God is moving in our own community. This question left me wondering where my own blindness may be and where it comes from. I feel that urge to put lines around what God is and what God is not. I'm not saying just like throw discernment off the window, but more often than not, I think we will reach for certainty rather than mystery. I think sometimes our attempts to grasp the meaning of suffering can become our blindness. Whose fault is this? Why is this happening? Like you said, I'm also here to talk to you about miracles because I'm weary. I've experienced unjust suffering. I live with a chronic illness which there is no cure. I'm very familiar with the dark. And I think staying open is hard when we've been manipulated by the promise of miracles that didn't come. Maybe we are in darkness and God just doesn't seem to show up. And it's scary to hope because we might get hurt. It's hard for me to remain open to the work God could do 
Because sometimes I'd almost rather have the certainty that he wouldn't work than dwell on the mystery of how he would. Or, maybe like me, you are a trained skeptic. I don't want to misstep in my theology. I don't want to look silly or foolish. I don't want to get ridiculed. I've read so much about how helping hurts and toxic charity, you know, I've countered some pretty horrific things in certain churches or denominations or councils, groups of people. I think sometimes I like to cross places out in my mind, like, all right, God couldn't do anything through this new leader because he's been kind of a jerk in the past, or this church doesn't really have a firm theology, um, or maybe really any, or this charity is, like, continuing the works of injustice without knowing it, so, like, no, I can't get on board with that. And I think about this sermon Chelsea preached out of Amos a few months ago, and how it was the prophetic voices that created the Pharisees, and how concern for justice created barriers instead of breaking them. And as I think about all the audiences who came in physical contact with a living miracle and could not receive it, his neighbors, the Pharisees, the Jews, his parents, I wonder if they had just lost their own sense of wonder. That childlike faith with eyes and hearts wide open because again, this whole story, there's no celebration for the man, only arguments and questions. They could not see it. Are there miracles, big or small, happening around us that we cannot celebrate simply because we cannot see? Again, I'll be the first to admit that there are ministries and trains of thought and ways of doing things that I've said God does not work that way. And I'm realizing more and more that this posture may need to change because this passage calls us to be open to the mystery of how God works, even if it's messy, unexpected, outside of my own theological categories or across any lines. It might be good theological intentions. It might be too much time in the dark. It might be brokenness. It might be straight-up skepticism, but I think a lot of it comes down to a loss of wonder. The ability to be open to the mysterious ways God works. The ability to release certainty and embrace our very own great and mysterious God. And as we approach this Lenten season, I hope that we can hold on to this sense of wonder as we approach the dark death of Jesus and wait for the resurrecting life of the world so that we too can look at the resurrection and the community and the world around us and say, look at what God is doing. This is an amazing 